Before we start, I want to thank Nutcrack for supporting the Madisonian podcast. The beautiful crunch and the healthy, humble perfection that every Nutcrack pecan offers is simply superb. With great care, they handmake their Nutcrack candy pecans and its chili spiked cousin, Firecracker, three pounds at a time. I like it as a midday energy boost or a quick after-school snack. You can also put it on your breakfast oatmeal, use it as a salad topper, or throw it on your favorite flavor of ice cream. Nutcrack makes the world a little more delicious, one perfect nut at a time. And they're offering listeners of the Madisonian podcast a special discount. Use code MADISONIAN15 for 15% off purchases at nutcrack.com. That's N-U-T-K-R-A-C-K dot com. And use code MADISONIAN15 in all caps for 15% off your next purchase. My guest for the day grew up in a town of 3,000 people in a fairly regular household. Idealizing his father, he wanted to become a state trooper. After 9-11, he enlisted at 17 years old and served two tours as an infantryman in Iraq. Now, he has found a life in education as a high school English teacher. I'm Ben Brown, and this is the Madisonian Podcast. Today I talked to my English teacher, Mr. Cook. From the first day of school, I knew I would enjoy his class. He makes video game and movie references every few sentences and has a good energy he gives off even through Zoom. He introduced himself on the first day with a small slideshow about himself where he talked about doing two tours in Iraq as an infantryman. I was intrigued and knew that there was so much there to his life to unpack. So I interviewed him. And throughout this interview, it is clear to see how much he connects literature, movies, and pop culture to his serving, his teaching, and all his other life experiences. Now please enjoy my interview with Mr. Cook. I was born technically in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but grew up uh, in the Black River Falls area, a little bit in Hickston, and then we moved to town uh, when when uh, my brother came along because <laughs> we needed a little more room than that little uh, country house. Um, and we grew up small town, about 3,400 people at the time. It's since been uh, getting bigger. Um, and it was pretty normal. Parents were, still are together. I had uh, a sister that was a year and a half older and then a brother that was five years younger. Um, and pretty normal, not a lot of disarray. Uh, I wasn't uh, I was a little bit of a, a nerd growing up. I was pretty small too, so minor, minor bullying, as it were. Um, so I, I, I was, I was looking into Black River Falls a little bit, uh, and I got down this rabbit hole of um, this kind of like folklore and stuff that's like something like happened in the 1890s or something, where everyone went crazy and all these everyone was killing each other and like going crazy. I mean, do you, was that ever a thing? (laughs) Well, uh, there's a book. It was kind of a, it was a photographer's um, kind of thesis, final project. I don't know what university they were going to, which I don't even know if it was UW or it could have been U of M, but uh, he found, there was this photographer, can't remember his name, in the late 1800s that just was enamored with Jackson County and would take a lot of pictures and document a lot. Um, and then 
fast forward to the 70s and this photographer found this archive, decided to make a book out of it and find the stories that related to each uh, <clears throat> photo. And plus the, um, the Jackson County Chronicle was a newspaper we had that was pretty diligent about keeping up with the goings on. Uh, so it's kind of a long story, but they ended up making a documentary around the year 99-2000 called Wisconsin Death Trip, which was also the name of the book, um, narrated by Ian Holm. It was actually a British uh, British uh, uh, film company, I think, that made it. But it was, uh, it was a big deal when they came to film. We weren't sure what it was about. And it didn't paint a very good picture of Jackson County. Tell me about kind of what the school experience was like for you. What kind of student were you? Yeah. Yeah, the school experience, um, small classes, uh, fairly small. My AP English class was only like eight students. Um, and uh, it was, I wasn't a great student. I, I, I wasn't a troublemaker. I was a jokester. I would kind of make, you know, uh, like to be the, not the full-on class clown. That being said, if I found too much of maybe like a, a barrier, like with math or like econ and chemistry, I, I would kind of not shut down, but I, if it was too hard, it wasn't worth trying. So I, I wasn't an ideal student, but my neighbor uh, was a history teacher at that high school. I only had him for two classes. I never took a push with him because I didn't, I kind of didn't want to let him down because I grew up with his son. But my mother, I guess, was just kind of frustrated, knew I had capacity, but she just said, what is Alex's deal to this teacher, neighbor, known him for, you know, 15, 18 years. And he said, when the student is ready, the teacher will follow. It's kind of like you can't lead a horse, you can lead a horse to water, can't make him drink, um, which, you know, I've not kind of experienced as a teacher. You have to, you know... It's, it's hard. It's hard because I've, I've been in that position. Grant, I did okay in English class, you know, and history and psych, AP psych. These classes I found fascinating. But when it came to like econ or chemistry, where the it wasn't just that it didn't interest me. It's just once the concepts became too difficult for me to grasp, uh, I, I, I kind of gave up. Yeah. I mean, did you kind of have an idea at that point in middle school, high school of what you were going to do after high school? Because, I mean, yeah, walk me through that. Um, yes and no. I think it's every, you know, young person's, you know, maybe to speak for myself, inclination to just maybe do what your parents did because um, you just see them do it day in, day out. You see that it, you know, provided... Um, and you, you know, in my case, I kind of idolized my dad a little bit because he was a Wisconsin state trooper and I would hear things when I, as I got older and started working around town and people would figure out, Oh, you're Steve Cook's son. Oh, he's just, what a stand up guy, you know, just a really, you know, those, that's, that's the kind of cop you want to be. It's like, he respects everybody and in turn got respect. Um, and so not to go down that rabbit hole, but the whole, you know, a cab thing, has been complicated for me just because I saw something different growing up. That being said, I thought I wanted to be a state trooper. And he said, you just needed 60 credits. Didn't matter in what. I knew I couldn't afford it. And later on in life, I found out that dad had joined the army as a military policeman. And I was like, oh, that's a, that's a pretty good route. You know, I can just, you know, you don't really need credentials or good grades to, to get into the army. And then from there, parlayed into just a career in the Wisconsin State Patrol. So, and then 
so that's what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm, I, want, I don't want to like jump on any questions you might lead to, but we didn't really know, like dad didn't talk about his army time very much. And it's not because he didn't go over. I think it's just, it was a period of his life way before he got out in like 77, you know, 11 years before I was born. So he was just like, it wasn't a, a big thing that we were really aware of. He wasn't a super army guy. He did three years, got out. Um, but then, so the plan was GI Bill, be an MP, go army right after high school. But then 9-11 happened, uh, which kind of... Was that in your was that in your senior year or when exactly? Sophomore, oh. sophomore year. Um, yeah, beginning of my sophomore year uh, was when that went down. Um, so yeah, I'm not that old. <laughs> uh, and then I, you know, started thinking about things and it was just, it really affected everybody. A lot of people were enlisting and I really wanted to, and I think I was into history at that time and I was reading a lot of World War II literature, uh, some Stephen Ambrose um, and HBO had this miniseries based on his book called Band of Brothers came out and kind of ignited that you know, patriotism has a, a bad connotation, I feel like, these days. But there is a difference between patriotism and jingoism, right? Jingoism is like, my country's the best. Like, it's very, I think, uh, aggressive. Whereas patriotism, it's like, for all of its flaws, there's a lot that has come from the country I was born in. And we were attacked. And so I felt that kind of call to service, for lack of a better word. And that's when I wanted to, I switched to infantry and because I felt that was the best on the ground uh, military occupational specialty or MOS that I could do. Um, and even after I took the ASVAB, the entrance exam, I, I, it wasn't the best. My brother and sister scored higher than I did. But uh, I scored high enough where you could do any job. You know, there's certain jobs like in the Navy, working in a submarine, you know, being an engineer, you can only, you have to get a high score, right? Um, and if you get a lower score, uh, you're stuck with jobs like, you know, infantry or I don't know what the equivalent is for other branches. Uh, that being said, my recruiter was like, Alex, you can do anything else if you really want to. But I was pretty adamant about about being boots on the ground, I guess. Not necessarily to fight, though that was part of it, because it was the Iraq war was in its nascency. It was it was early uh, by the time I got sent over. Um, but just to hopefully make a difference, I guess. Yeah. Um, did you immediately kind of fit into that environment or was it like an adjustment period for you? I mean, was that hard to, yeah. Good question. Good question. Yeah. It, I didn't fit in immediately. Uh, first off I was, um, I, I actually graduated. So I enlisted in June of 2003 at the end of my junior year, as soon as I turned well, very shortly after I turned 17, cause you can enlist at 17 with parental permission. I remember my recruiter driving to the to the house um, and my mom, you know, explained what was happening. And my mom, my mom was on board very, very reluctantly. But uh, I don't know how we convinced her. I think it's because her mom didn't let her join, maybe. And she just felt that kind of didn't want to make that same mistake for me. But it was a different story then. But um, she said, I think jokingly, as she was signing, she's like, does this effectively make him a ward of the state? And he was a not a super rigid guy, but just very seriously said, yes, ma'am, it, it does. So she literally signed away her parental night rights on that day in June. Um, so then I graduated early in January to go to basic and infantry school in February. And I did an infantry, it's called one station unit training. So I knew 
everybody I was going to basic training with were infantrymen, and we were going to be together for instead of nine weeks, uh, 14 weeks. And it's all infantry training kind of throughout and a little extended. Unlike if you want to be a medic, you go do nine weeks at like Fort Leonard Wood of regular basic, basic training. And then you and your cohort all go to separate places to learn your specialty. Like my sister went to Fort Leonard Wood. Leonard Wood, Missouri for basic, and then had to go to Sam Fort Sam Houston in Texas to be a medic. So anyway, so fitting in. Yep, yeah, back no, no, to no, go ahead, it, go ahead. It, it, it was an adjustment. I was the baby uh, of my platoon and a kind of a fish out of water, you know, from small town Wisconsin with mostly just white and Native American people surrounding me, whereas it was a grab bag of black, Latino, um, you know, Puerto Rican, Puerto uh, Rican, Cuban, uh, and even and eventually some some I had an African guy, two African guys in my unit, like from Africa. Um, but no, I didn't fit in with the redneck mentality. I wasn't old enough to really know what partying, clubbing was, uh, stuff like that. And so I never got full on hazed, but I definitely didn't fit in. I don't think I was not to offend anybody, but like like not quite redneck enough. You know, I just didn't have that kind of macho mentality. I didn't do, I did football in middle school, not high school. I was at a play. I was a waiter. You know, I just didn't have that. But in terms of the tactics and the, the know-how and being able to run an M16, you know, my dad would take me to the range uh, to learn those kinds of weapon systems growing up. So I had the technical knowledge, but in terms of fitting in, it was a struggle. Yeah. When did you kind of, uh, when did you get deployed and, 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 and kind of what was your thought process going on there? Like, were you scared? Were you worried? I mean, or were you just like ready to face, you know, whatever? Um, a little bit scared. Nah, not a little bit, a lot of it. I mean, I'd never been outside the country, right? Uh, until this point, Um, deployed in February, well, late January of, uh, no, January of 2005. And then you spend a few weeks in Kuwait, but the build up to it, you know, you have to do like a month rotation at a training facility, which, uh, that first tour, it was Fort Polk, Louisiana, and you pretend it's the sandbox, you know, it's all, it's all the game. Um, the thing about infantry, and I read this in Black Hawk Down by Mark Bowden, um, is that you feel like you're a football team practicing. Like that's your job is to practice, practice, practice when you're in the States and you don't get to play the big game until you're overseas. If you're like an MP or an accountant in the army, you still have a job to do back in the States, right? Whereas we have to just practice kicking indoors, practice doing patrols, practice having, you know, uh, you know, being out in the desert or forest, whatever. Um, so we're building up towards that. And I remember... <clears throat> being a little uneasy, even thinking before I went to basic. <clears throat> but I remember my uh, platoon sergeant, who was actually from Richland Center. That's why he kind of took a shine to me, is because I was too was from Wisconsin. Not a lot of Wisconsin representation, it didn't seem. There's a lot of Texas, New York, and Cali, but that's a demographic thing. But he had us all lined up and have, had us look to our left and right um, and say, you know, you know, not everybody's going to make it because it was early in the war and, you know, just look to your left and right. Not every, we're not all coming back. And I mean, he wasn't wrong. Um, and yeah, death is a funny thing. Not funny. It's, it's different when you're, God, I, I hadn't even turned 19 yet when we deployed. 
So I would say, uh, yes, I was scared. So scared. Yeah. Yeah. Scared. Yeah. I mean, kind of walk me through what your experience was overseas. Um, kind of, yeah, what that was like for you. Talk about, yeah, your experience overseas. Um, you know, it's pretty, you know, I always joke that they're, you know, for all the, um, not going to use profanity, for all the oh, oh crap moments, you know, there's, for every one oh crap moment, there there's a, like a hundred days of, of, of boredom, I guess, in terms of no real action. We're still, that's the other thing I appreciate about being infantry, even though it was, you had oh crap moments, is, you know, a lot of presence patrols, you get to actually interact with the culture and the people, um, pick up on a little bit of the, the language, and then my my second tour, between tours, that is, I got to take a six-week Arabic course, so I could kind of be a little more interactive with the populace. Um, that's the thing. There was no, obviously, depending on which tour I talk about, the day-to-day is a little bit different. Because my second tour, I was a team leader. First tour, I was just a regular private, um, but had a degree of jobs. But mostly, um, like I said, presence patrols. Um, and, and my first tour was in a bigger city called Bakuba, the capital of the Diyala province. And so... That was uh, kind of a different story. But it was, like I said, in terms of those oh crap moments and, you know, experiencing death, I guess, over there, or, you know, people being killed in action, we did, uh, I was going to say this a little bit earlier when, you, when I said death is kind of an interesting thing. It's when, when we lost somebody early on, he was older, but I think I'm actually close to his age when he passed now. But when you're 18 and, and you hear, you know, you're, you would, it was second platoon's platoon sergeant. And yeah, it was like sad, depressing. It was just like it became real because it was the first casualty of OIF-3. It was in February. It was actually on Valentine's Day of 2005 when I found out he uh, got hit. It seemed not okay, but it was just like, well, he was, you know, he had a wife, two kids. He kind of lived a life. And I'd later on find out when I was teaching All Quiet on the Western Front that there is that kind of struggle that the the protagonist is having. He's like, I haven't even started my life. I haven't known anything but war since getting out of school. He's at least had that opportunity to live his life. You know, those older, those older soldiers. And so that's when it made me, I don't know if it was then or as I'm getting older and thinking differently about it. Um, and then you do little things when another guy in my platoon... Um, got hit. It was while I was on my way home from, you get a mid-tour leave, two weeks uh, home, you know, stateside. Uh, so just as I was getting back, found out they got hit. And he, I just remember going to the latrine that night to go to the shower and thinking, you know, he did this exact same thing the night, he could have done this exact same thing the night before he died, not knowing, or the night that he died, not knowing that he was going to die that night. So it's just, just perspective, I think is what you get. I know you asked about the day-to-day, but that's that's part of the day-to-day is infantry because you're out on patrol every day, and that could be the reality. Do you think you sort of, over time, prepared yourself more and more for that process, that, um, that maybe happening to you specifically? Um, do you think you became more and more prepared, or do you think that was not, like, do you think, yeah you were never while I was in there yeah. like as I my experiences as I stayed there longer I mean especially the second tour you see it as a reality and there was like a period of time where it was really I guess hairy um, but it got better after um, 
Yeah, you know, you know, that was the most Wisconsin I've sounded. It's it's hard. And, and you know, it's I'm trying to not, like, conflate, like, because it's been how long since, you know, 2005 was my first tour and 2008 was my last. So it's, it's I'm trying not to conflate what I've grown to know and understand about myself with where my headspace was then. But even then, I, I remember reading somewhere that the only way to succeed as a soldier is to accept the fact that you're already dead and then you're then you can do your job so yeah i think you just kind of come to terms especially when it's happening around you i mean i think i i don't know that i told this story um i drew the short straw and had to <laughs> my first tour while everyone else got to fly from kuwait to bakuba um me and a select myself and a select few others had to convoy all of our gear up from kuwait and it took a couple days, long days driving through the desert, and it's like a lot of ground to cover. And at any point, the main supply route could get hit. Um, but it's just, you're not sleeping for crap. And you're just sleeping in these transient barracks at these places you stop along the way, these little uh, operating bases. So the night I get finally to Fob Gabe, where I was, they show me my room. I'm exhausted. I dump my gear. And it's like, you know, this is your bed and it's not a cot. Still just a thin sponge mattress, but not a cot, finally. And I remember laying down, and in the middle of the night, just hearing these loud explosions rattling the window right outside. And I just remember, like, thinking, if they get me, they get me. It's just, I'm so tired. There's nothing I can do. I just, I don't care. And then I woke up the next day, asked my sergeant. I said, Sergeant, what was that last night? Did we get hit? And he took me outside and showed me. It was it was pitch black when we when we got in. It was outgoing artillery. We were right by the cannons that were shooting out. It was still a scary prospect. But so I was in no real danger. But my brain said, even if I am, I'm too tired to care. And it's it just comes down to chow and sleep is what your main concerns are and staying alive. But if it's your time, it's your time. Because in terms of that war, for the most part, it's difficult to shoot straighter, farther, or faster to keep yourself alive, because a lot of their methods are those improvised explosive devices, right? That that they just press a button from a mile away. They're, they're just watching with binos for you to cross that line where they know they set it up. And so it's, you know, it's all it all seemed very like it was up to chance. And so once you kind of let go of that, you can not be frozen by fear, I guess. Yeah. I mean, when I know you've spoken... Um, of a certain experience where you you got pretty close to being hit by an IED. I mean, walk me through kind of what happened there and and, and your thought process as that was going down. Yeah, this is uh, yeah, that story came up because I'm a little hard of hearing in the right ear, and with the masks on in school, it's been kind of I, I realized with the masks on that I read lips more than I thought I did. Um, and I usually have subtitles on at home. Um, that being said, uh, you know, people talk about triggers, right? And, and my trigger is the song 1999 by Prince. I don't flip out if I hear it, but it immediately takes me to July 18th, 2005, uh, which was the day it happened. Um, we were doing just kind of a, a night patrol slash IED sweep. We were just in Humvees. Um, and, you know, you're not really supposed to have your your Humvee speaker hooked up to an iPod or anything, but, but we did. Uh, and I was in the gunner's seat, uh, which is kind of half exposed and you're sitting on almost like a, a swing set type seat. It's just kind of like a, a, a U shape of, of 
fabric that's harnessed to the top of, to the to the roof and then your head's outside the hole and I was on the M240 Bravo machine gun and you know he passed the time because this is you don't want to get complacent and I don't believe that we were but it was dark we were in blackout drive which means you can only really see the lights from the Humvee if you've got your night vision on um, but anyway so 1999 is playing and Sergeant Jimmy Brown was in the TC slot which means he's like to the right of the driver if you're facing forward um and miller was driving friend of mine uh and as we're driving we're all sharing stories about you know 1999 where were you because there's the big y2k scare and i was not even 13 like they all had these for the most part everybody had like a story about being at a party hanging out with their girlfriends and i was like you know i was 12 i think we drank mountain dew and played mario kart on nintendo 64 pretty pretty boring for me but then um I don't suppose profanity is allowed here, but he profaned. But he said, man, I was in Bosnia. We all thought the world was going to F and end. And he said that. And remember, it's pitch black and we've got our nods on. But I, through my nods, I saw, I remembered seeing a flash of light. And we have what's called light discipline. You're not supposed to take pictures or anything. And this is before iPhones. So a lot of us did have disposable cameras, um, you know, to get our capture our events and experiences. And I thought, who the F is taking pictures? Because that's a big no-no. And that's when the big boom came, the smoke, the concussion, immediately in front of our front right tire and just feeling it go through you. This, When you're that close to an explosion, because, you know, we've thrown grenades, we've seen explosions, but never been, I've never been that close to one. And I remember being discombobulated at first, obviously, because it was the first ID that's been right next to me. The other, I've seen other ones. Um, and then just kind of slumping down a little bit in my seat, but then my brain kind of, like, I'm, you know, cannot hear at this point. Imagine cupping your, your hands to your ears and talking. That's how I sounded to myself and I could barely hear anyone else. But I remember slumping down and then thinking to myself, I'm the gunner. And usually when they hit you with an ID, they then do small arms for the rooftops and being a, we're in the middle of a uh, you know, city plate, city. So there's taller buildings where they can shoot down from. Um, and then I was like, oh, I'm the, I'm the line between my guys and potential death. So I hopped back up to potentially engage and realized I could not see anything. And I'm coughing and I'm like, okay, I don't want to be sitting duck up here if I can't see what I'm shooting at. And so I dropped all the way down to the floor of the Humvee and uh, De Loera was right behind me. And he just said, Cook's hit. Cook's hit. And you're told these stories, you know, from whoever that, you know, when you're shot or shrapnel, you, you don't feel it because your body goes into shock right away or you, you'll keep fighting through it because the adrenaline is jacking you up so much. So I started patting myself down thinking I was in fact hit. I was not. Everybody made it. And I do make a point for the most part to only share those stories for the most part where, where most everybody makes it. So we uh, ended up, we're all okay. You know, the they, my, we, there's always four trucks in patrol. And so our lieutenant came back, said, are we all okay? And we were all good. We did our checks. We limped off the X, the X is what we call the, the site, um, and got the, the tire changed. Uh, and then we started to look for the guys that did it because we saw some guys take off. Um, we ended up getting them and we did the wipe test and they tested positive for, for bomb making uh, chemicals on their hands because it turns a certain color, the pad, uh, if it comes in contact with stuff. Um, 
but we don't know if they just made the bombs or if they detonated the bombs, but we took them to the jail. Uh, I can't remember what the cell is what we called it. And then they got picked up later for to have a talking to. That was above our pay grade, but we got the guys that did it, or at least made the bomb that did it, which is kind of serendipitous. Um, but yeah, that was my first IED. I had another one later on. Second tour um, was my other major IED. Um, but we weren't in a Humvee this time. We were in um, uh, Bradley Fighting Vehicles, which is kind of like a tank, but not really. It's different in that it doesn't have a huge cannon. It has 35 millimeter. Um, and then it has a troop compartment in the back for your dismounts, right? So like armored personnel carrier, but with a big gun on top. We had just done a really, really long morning dismounted patrol. Uh, we helicoptered in, and we were supposed to push east with the rising sun. And then uh, Bradley's would pick us up and drive us home. And by that time, you're just in a hurry to get gone. And for most of us, this is our second tour. We have a few new privates, but basically guys that should know better. They say complacency kills, speed kills. Because if you're going too fast, you can't see some of the telltale signs of an IED being planted. But we're in the Bradley. We want to get home. We're tired. And so we're just cruising. And then from underneath was a big boom. And it lifted the Bradley, which weighs a lot, especially with the added armor. So the fact that it took it off the ground and landed is something to behold. Um, and so we, you know, they dropped the ramp, everybody was okay. And we just started lighting up the, the palm groves uh, where it had come from. The reason we know it came from there is because we could see, they didn't even try to bury the wire very hard, but we could see the wire leading into there, into the palm groves um, to my, you know, to the right of the, the Bradley. Um, so if we'd been going a little bit slower, it looked like, you know, when Bugs Bunny's digging underground to get to Albuquerque or when he makes the wrong time. That's exactly what it looked like. Just this long mound of dirt to cover a wire. It's like if we'd been going the right speed, we would have seen it. Um, but yeah, that's the one, though, where if I'd been in a Humvee, if it was any vehicle other than a tank or a Bradley, it would have been game over. A Humvee couldn't have sustained that explosion because it was a bunch of like uh, artillery rounds. They had kind of daisy chained together uh, because I actually have a piece of one. I kind of, I found it. It was hot to the touch, but I'm like, this is something to remember not to be too hasty, right? Not, you know, follow the rules. Don't be complacent. So I have a chunk of it that I kind of smuggled over. Hopefully the, they don't get mad at me. So, I mean, kind of when did you decide that you wanted to maybe um leave the army and, and and find another aspect of your life um when did you decide to 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 move from one journey to another i knew right away that i wanted to be not i didn't want to be full-time in in the army i knew it was like a stepping stone um to pay for college um and i still had at the time the montgomery gi bill which was i say only but you know in terms of what uh, college costs. It was only $30,000. Um, and that's the one that's been in place since like the early 20th century. Um, so I knew I was a short timer. They always try to talk you into staying and saying, you know, the world's not doing so great. The army's secure. It's safe. It's a job. It's like, I just, I want to, I want to go to college. Uh, and so I started asking a lot of uh, lieutenants because officers in the army have to have uh, a degree. They have to have a bachelor's minimum. Um, I don't know all the other rules. It could just be, you know, 120 credits. But I would always ask them what they majored in. Um, and one 
guy I asked said he majored in Russian at West Point. Another one, you know, majored in business. I was like, I don't want to do that. And I still kind of had the idea I wanted to be a cop and was probably going to be a cop to the point that I had my other lieutenant, Lieutenant Caldwell. Um, he went to Tuskegee and he said, you know, Cook, just talking to you because we would watch Seinfeld together, um, which was always fun. Especially like he's, you know, wouldn't have expected him to like Seinfeld. But uh, he's like, man, Cook, just listen to you talk and the stuff you say. And I see you reading. You should be an English major. And I was like, no, no, sir. I want a job when I get up. But I would never major in literature. Um, and then I think I kind of settled on psych because I liked AP psych in school. And I thought maybe something. I didn't want to just major in criminal justice because I felt like that would pigeonhole me. So like I can major in psych and then I can be a cop if I want or maybe, you know, do something with PTSD or the VA, um, help my fellow soldiers, what have you. But as I was taking the psych classes, I had to replace a class that I dropped that following fall semester. And it ended up being like a film class, like intro to film. And I was like, this is an English class. I did take a film class in high school, but this is like robust. This film professor, uh, Professor Blake Westerland, uh, was just such a good presence. He was so warm and just like was so funny. And he just brought all this stuff. And so it's like, I want to take more classes with him or, you know, within the department. And then just the more I was learning, I was just like, I got to switch majors. I, uh, cause I was not digging it to the point that I actually dropped out for a year to try my hand at private military contracting. I did the training, um, but never got deployed. And I was like, okay, I'll go back to school then since they aren't going to send me anywhere. Um, but then I went back and switched majors to English and it was like a weight was lifted. It felt like a good fit. Um, but I was, I majored in literature and cultures. I didn't consider being a teacher. I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do. I think I wanted to try something like copywriting or, you know, you know, maybe go on to teach at the college level, but I didn't know that that was an option for me at the time. But so I remember my, one of my last semesters, you know, you'll have to like teach the class sometimes, you know, or just, here's your assignment and then you'll have to present to the class. And after I finished, uh, it was a different professor, uh, Dr. Kathy Rex. And she said, Alex, are you, are you uh, going for ed? Are you teaching? What's, what's your specialty? Uh, Alabama accent there. Uh, and I was like, uh, no, I'm just literature. She goes, wow, I could have just, I could have sworn you were for ed the way you were talking to the room there. And I was like, oh, maybe I do kind of have a knack for this. Uh, and then ended up getting the program here at UW-Madison, uh, the uh, Master's in Secondary Ed, and uh, which was a great experience. I got a student teach at Madison West. But I guess, yeah, I, I think just being in college, gravitating towards English and then substitute teaching is when I realized I could, I could see myself teaching and, and have fun with it. Yeah. Um, I want to ask, like, what... I mean, what do you, what permanent effects um, do you think the military and serving overseas has left on you um, that you still um, noticed today? Um, there's uh, obviously I still say latrine. <laughs> I say sir and ma'am a lot. Uh, I was in a <laughs> department meeting. No, it's just an English one meeting. And, you know, I made a suggestion and said, here's what I've done uh, in a Zoom and the department chair says, yeah, Alex, go ahead, put that in the, in the chat. And without thinking, I said, yes, ma'am. And another English teacher, Miss Miller said, or well, Miss Marshall now, she said, um, Alex, your army is showing because I just said, yes, ma'am. Uh, so little things like that um, in terms of not necessarily adverse, but, um, you know, loud noises can be not ideal. 
uh, sometimes it can just make me uncomfortable. Um, I think about it, but it doesn't like freeze me anymore. Like it won't, not, it never really froze me, but one thing we always were trained to look out for while driving is like garbage or piles of things on the side of the road. Cause that's where they would hide IEDs. So just kind of, you know, I just, I noticed myself noticing that, uh, another trait they say, and is it's, that comes from that kind of experience is hypervigilance where you're always looking around, you're always listening, um, you know, wanting to know where the exits are, uh, not sitting with your back to a door um, is pretty common for me and, and others. Um, yeah, I think that stuff. But, you know, in addition to that, my other permanent effects is like it, it, it could always be worse. It's like kind of affected my perspective on the world. Yeah. Do you think it's like uh, influenced the way you teach at all or your teaching styles at all? Uh, no, I don't. Maybe a little bit. I think it's my love of teaching maybe a little bit or like appreciating those kind of aha moments students have. Because like I said, my after my first tour, I became a team leader. Um, we were kind of short staffed. So I only had two privates underneath me um, or two subordinates, uh, two subordinates. <laughs> Uh, so showing them the skills they needed to know. And especially when we went over to Iraq, it was my second time, their first, getting to show them the ins and outs, helping them interact with the culture, helping them know what to look out for, how to keep them safe, keep them alive. So I think maybe the army kind of gave me that initial taste of, of teaching, of being like a mentor to a degree. But, um, <laughs> if it influenced me anymore, I'd have students doing push-ups whenever they got the answer wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't, I think it has influenced my teaching style, but it's influenced like my appreciation of pedagogy and, and learning how to work with students. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it, it, it means a lot to me. Um, I appreciate it very much. Um, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners or tell the listeners? <laughs> um, just like, you know, people ask, are you okay talking about this stuff? Um, and I had a class, this is an anecdote I hope I'd get to, because it kind of made me reevaluate, I guess, myself in terms of what I'm willing to share. Um, when, I was when I was student teaching, I student taught um, trends in 20th century literature, which I'm teaching now, but it happened to be our first unit was war poetry and war literature. And, you know, my cooperating teacher was, was happy to see a veteran's perspective uh, on this. And it felt like when we started reading All Quiet on the Western Front, a lot of the students, it's, it's very much an anti-war novel, and a lot of my students feel, felt, seemed to me reluctant to engage in debate or discussion because they were worried about offending me. And that made me kind of do just like a transparent, ask your questions. I did a little presentation to explain my role in what's become kind of an unpopular conflict, right? Um, and just being more transparent because if they don't hear it from me, they might hear it from a super biased person, or, you know, or just like a, a journalist who maybe never went over there, but just has all this stuff to say about it. So, you know, don't, I, I don't, I guess what I'm saying is like, some people are afraid to ask. I say, don't be afraid to ask. There are those kind of taboo questions. Like, did you kill anybody that I've gotten? Or I had one inebriated mother of a school friend that I saw back home, you know, did you find those weapons of mass destruction? And it's like, Obviously not. I'm a freaking infantryman on the ground. I'm, that's not my job. But just if it's within the matter of good taste, you know, don't maybe don't be afraid to ask is what I want to say. Because I think veterans telling their stories are, are important. Trying to get mine written down and maybe make a million dollars. But 
No, I'm kidding. But I'm trying to get them down. It's been a slow, arduous process. But, you know, there's a lot of literature out there, too. That's why another reason I teach literature is to understand someone else's experience and gain that empathy, you know, reading, reading from people that you want to learn more about or. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of empathy comes from sharing stories and sharing experiences. So, yeah. I'm... And, uh, and getting rid of those stereotypes. A lot of people are surprised that I was not only a veteran, but an infantry veteran because they have the idea of the flags and the trucker caps, you know, and the kind of good old boy stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it just, you know, dispels those stereotypes and notions. Please support us by supporting our advertisers. Use code MADISONIAN15 for 15% off your next purchase at nutcrack.com. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by me, Ben Brown, cover art editing, producing, and booking also by me. If you're a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, please email at ben at the madisonianpodcast.com to express interest. Please support us by buying our line of merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast or click the link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and keep an eye out for next week's episode.